0: Hi, I'm Emma and I'm Hillary. And this is the probably not lupus podcast where we discuss medical mysteries and entertain you with curious and uncommon case studies. These are based on mostly true stories collected from real people, history,
1: journals, and fellow doctors to protect privacy names, dates, and locations may
0: have been altered. Get ready for your medical mystery bolus. Probably Not Lupus is a show about our favorite medical mysteries. Nothing the hosts say should be taken for medical advice or opinion. We are not experts, nor are we journalists. It's just for fun, so enjoy. John was an avid camper throughout his 20s and early 30s. Living in the pacific northwest forest, he enjoyed many outdoor activities throughout his life. He even recalls being bitten by ticks over the years and saw his GP for antibiotic treatment of Lyme disease in the past. 12 years later, John feels he has still not recovered. After feeling dismissed by healthcare professionals, he sought alternative treatment and was eventually diagnosed with chronic Lyme disease. In order to cure his illness, he attempts multiple rounds of antibiotics, but his symptoms like joint pain, memory loss, and nerve pains in his hands and feet are only getting worse. He begins to wonder, maybe the diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease was wrong. Whenever you're ready. Hello everyone, welcome back. Episode 9 of the Probably Not Lupus podcast. Who would have thought we'd make it this far? I mean, I kind of thought we did, but in a certain way, I'm also glad we've made it this far and we're almost through season one. I'm really proud of our efforts. Yeah,
1: we've done great
0: and we've thoroughly enjoyed doing it as well. Yes, this has been a little bit of fun. It's been a creative outlet for us. It's been an interesting outlet for us. And I think we've both learned. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And we're back face-to-face again. We are in person on Hillary's couch this week. Yes. So happy to... I like recording in person better, but... I do too. And I apologize now for the sound quality because I can hear my washing machine in the background and the dog is snoring (laughs) on the ground. So I'm sorry, but you know what? For our enjoyment, personal enjoyment, I'm happy we're face-to-face. Yes, it's great. So today we
1: have a really interesting and slightly controversial topic Um, We're not just going to be talking about Lyme disease, but we will also be talking about chronic Lyme disease, which is questionable whether it is a legitimate scientific diagnosis or not.
0: Yeah, and kind of like our first episode, Breast Implant Illness, if you haven't gone back and listened to that yet, we suggest you do that now. It's our most listened to episode, actually. According, It's a great one. Yeah, it is great. And it too is not considered a legitimate medical diagnosis in many medical communities. However, there's... There is this large growing population of people who believe they have breast implant illness. There is also a large growing population of people who believe they have chronic Lyme disease. Yes. So
1: let's get into some background explanation on what is
0: Lyme disease, Hillary. Yeah, great question. So many of you have probably heard about Lyme disease before as it is an infectious disease caused by a tick bite. The actual bacteria is Borrelia burgdifori. That's in North America where we live here. It is a tick, but the disease is transmitted when the tick bites a human via the saliva. But really the tick is a vector for the illness the actual reservoir where the illness develops is in like a mouse if you picture the beautiful northwest forest we have here you know we have lots of mouse living on the ground we have lots of ticks living in the forest there's also lots of deers large mammals so the ticks bite the mice they get the borrelia bacteria from the mouse and then they pass it on to the human via their saliva via their bite Now the tick must really remain attached to the human for about 24 to 48 hours. So one to two days before they actually transmit that bacterial pathogen. Um, and this is important for prevention of Lyme disease, which we'll talk a little bit about later, but because it does take a little while to actually pass you that bacteria, the tick needs to be attached and feeding off your blood because they are teeny tiny little vampires to actually give you that disease. Uh, Now, Emma's going to talk a little bit more about the prevalence. Okay, so something that I found really interesting was the
1: increasing rates of Lyme disease. So the government of Canada currently has data from 2009 to 2019, so a good 10-year span. Um, And it's really, I mean, I was surprised, but also interesting to see that in 2009, there were 144 reported cases. And then in 2019, there was... 2,636 reported cases. Whoa, that's quite the jump. (laughs) Exactly. And the number of um, Lyme disease cases reported by all Canadian provinces increased from 144 to 992 in 2016. Whoa. So in seven years, representing an increase from 0.4 to 2.7 per 1,000 population. Wow. Do they have an idea of why they think this is happening? So, I mean, I think what I shall talk about in the predictions for this year, but probably a lot to do with climate change. Right. Uh, in 2016, over 88% of the cases reported were from Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia. So as we said that how, uh, very popular in the Northeast, mm-hmm. Vermont, Maine, uh, states like that also mm-hmm. have a really high, um, prevalence of Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. And, Surveillance in these three provinces indicates that the population of back-legged ticks have been established for years, with an increase in the abundance of ticks being found in the previous identified risk areas. In addition to this, the percentage of the back-legged tick infections with the Lyme disease pathogen has also increased.
0: So there's more ticks, and there's more ticks that have the Borrelia infection. Exactly. Wow, okay. So looking forward to this year, Lyme disease forecasters
1: are predicting that 2021 may be for the record books. Wow. Last winter was the warmest on record. In various regions with known tick populations, the late spring and early summer weather has been remarkably hot, as we have even felt here on the West Coast. Yeah, so a couple heat domes this summer. Exactly. Everyone's rushing to buy those ACs, but warmer, wetter conditions increase tick-, tick populations. Okay. Combine that with the popularity of outdoor activities after being homebound due to the pandemic. Right. And experts say the result
0: of this could potentially be a boom in tick-borne diseases. Wow. Okay, so let's talk a little bit then about what to expect if you get Lyme disease. And really there are three sort of typical stages to the disease. There is the early localized stage, and this generally happens about days to weeks after that initial infection or that initial tick bite. And maybe you've heard of the quote, bullseye rash before, In medical terms, it's called erythema migrans, and it is really a red target-shaped rash with some clearing and then another red ring, so it looks like a bullseye, and it's generally where the tick has bitten the person. Um, There's also going to be some redness and inflammation in the area, and the person may also have vague flu-like symptoms. So again, these vague symptoms like fever and fatigue. Now, one thing I should mention about the rash is there is a move in medicine now to be more inclusive to all colors of skin and dermatology, right? And a lot of times these derm textbooks, or if you Google image search, uh, bullseye rash or erythema migrans, you're going to see that rash on a white person's skin. And it does look different on a person with darker complexion. So the characteristic bullseye rash typically is under-recognized in people with darker skin because they they don't see it. They haven't seen it. I think that's important to note about a variety of dermatological conditions yes. that
1: are under-diagnosed in brown skin in black skin. Yes,
0: absolutely. Um, so after that early stage, that initial infection, you're going to get the early dissemination stage. And this is really weeks to months after that initial infection as the bacteria spreads through the blood and it really affects three main areas or, well, let's say four main areas. So the heart and in the heart, it can lead to carditis, which can actually lead to a type of heart block or a heart arrhythmia. So very serious. It can also affect the nerves. And sometimes what happens is the nerves are so affected in the face. You can get a facial nerve palsy or paralysis of the face. That's generally bilateral. In the brain, you can also get meningitis or swelling of that protective layer around the brain. And in the joints, you see a lot of arthritis. And it really isn't because the bacteria necessarily is in that area, but the bacteria cause an immune response. So the immune system responds to that bacteria and it's an extreme response that damages the tissues in its process while it's trying to eliminate the bacteria. Now, after this early dissemination stage, there is a late dissemination stage that is usually months to years after that initial infection. And sometimes it's not even preceded by a history of early localized Or disseminated infection because maybe someone didn't even know they had these symptoms. And the arthritis is generally the presenting manifestation of this later stage disease. So this person has intermittent or persistent arthritis involving one or a few large joints, especially the knee. For some reason, it's really common in the knee. And other certain rare neurologic problems. So maybe like an encephalopathy or you know, problems with the brain or a polyneuropathy or like numbness and tingling in the fingers sort of thing. So it's kind of vague and unspecific, but it can be diagnosed even in this very late stage, years after that initial infection. So how do you diagnose it? So ultimately it Lyme disease
1: remains a challenging diagnosis. Right. Current tests are based on the development of antibodies in the blood, which may or may not show up until several weeks after the infection. So early identification relies heavily on the clinician's experience, as well as that patient to recall their events, their activities, their exposure to the outdoors, especially in the woods, and potentially this identification of the bullseye
0: rash. And like what you were saying, recognizing that there is an increase in prevalence because we're not having colder winters anymore, the ticks are surviving longer, there's more of them, and there's more of them containing this. Practitioners need to be aware of that so that they're not dismissing some of these early vague symptoms exactly
1: so for lab testing there could be an increased esr however we know that is a very non-specific marker of inflammation it just
0: says you have some inflammation
1: but it doesn't tell you why um so there is the antibody like i said Mm -hmm. um to the borrelia species however cross reactivity may cause many false positives right encouragingly A recent study found that an investigational polymerase chain reaction or PCR test is able to distinguish between early and late infection. So this PCR detects
0: the presence of a viral gene in Lyme disease causing bacteria. Oh, that's kind of neat. That's interesting. Because as you mentioned, if we're just looking for antibodies to the Borrelia bacteria and there's a lot of cross-reactivity with other things, then yeah, you might have a false positive. And I think that probably contributes to... The controversy surrounding there being a diagnosis of chronic Lyme. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about treatment. How do you treat Lyme disease? Antibiotics. Absolutely. Yep. So antibiotics and there's lots of different antibiotics choices there. We won't get into the details on that in this podcast. That's for a pharmacology podcast if you're interested. One um, thing to note about antibiotics when you're treating someone with Lyme disease is you need to monitor for something called a jarisch Herxheimer reaction, which is fever, sweating and muscle pain. And really it's a reaction from all the dying, bursting Lyme disease bacteria in the body that causes the immune system to respond forcefully. So although you are wanting to eliminate the bacteria, you want to make sure you're not doing it too quickly and forcefully or else the person also is not going to feel very well. So let's talk a little bit about prevention. So you mentioned, Emma, this higher prevalence or higher incidence of it. Yeah,
1: so generally we said it was found specifically in the northeast of the U.S. and the eastern part of Canada, including Ontario, Quebec, and Nova Scotia, had the highest rates reported. So when you think about it, It's going to be people who are hikers, campers, lots of people in the forest and the bushes, Mm -hmm. um, as well as any sort of areas of tall grass. And so it's important for protecting yourself to wear hats, to wear long sleeve shirts as well
0: as long pants and mm-hmm. higher socks, as well as bug spray deterrence. Right. And then also checking your body after you leave the forest. Exactly. making sure you don't have any ticks on you. Because when they first bite you, they can be quite small. Like you might not even notice them. Yeah, uh, Very small, about two millimeters
1: in size. Tiny, so, so you could miss it. Especially if it's in your scalp. So important to have someone in your life that can
0: check your body as well in the areas you can't see great because if you prevent getting borrelia then you don't have to treat borrelia like with anything perfect okay so let's talk a little bit more about how some patients have persistent non specific symptoms after the recommended antibiotic therapy for Lyme disease. And this is referred to as post-treatment Lyme disease or post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And it's used to describe these non-specific signs. And for the majority of patients, these symptoms improve gradually over six months to one year. About five to 15% of people develop this post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. We're not really sure what causes it. It's different from the late-stage disseminated disease, and it's also not chronic Lyme disease. It is something about the after-treatment of Lyme disease. Some people still feel not well, about 5 to 15% still feel non-well for about a year after treatment. Now, this has all been about Lyme disease and what's within the realm of accepted in the medical community right now but there is something called chronic Lyme disease, which is a term used by some practitioners and patient advocacy groups that is not really clearly defined and it can include post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. And like you mentioned about there being false positives with the antibody test, I think there is a lot of confusion about what is a normal result of Lyme disease or what is an anticipated outcome or potential outcome of Lyme disease versus what is chronic Lyme disease right so many
1: of these patients have no other recognizable syndromes or diagnoses right so they have these very non-specific findings and ultimately can only associate it back
0: to a previous diagnosis of lyme disease right and among the patients with these non-specific symptoms A lot of the times it's things like fatigue and muscle pains, obviously joint pain and tender points in the muscles. And if you know anything about fibromyalgia, which stay tuned for season two, we plan on discussing fibromyalgia in detail in the future. There is a lot of overlap between the symptoms in these two conditions. And so some doctors actually believe that fibromyalgia is an underlying condition or the person developed fibromyalgia and it's being confused with chronic Lyme disease now, fibromyalgia can actually also even be triggered by an infection. So maybe they get the fibromyalgia because they had the Lyme disease. And I think it only takes a quick Google
1: search mm. in term, in Lyme disease to see a plethora of forms and articles and websites talking about chronic Lyme. So it's very easy for one to think that, they have this based off of this previous
0: history of it. Right, and what's interesting about that is when we look at some case series, for example, patients who are diagnosed as having chronic Lyme disease actually had an underlying malignancy or cancer that was missed. You know, I know we are supposed to think about a patient having one disease that explains all of their symptoms, right, but you have to make sure you're ruling out these red flags. Because although it's undisputed that people can have severe symptoms of an illness, the cause and appropriate treatment promoted by chronic Lyme advocates are controversial. Oftentimes, a lot of those treatments are like extended antibiotic therapies too, which can have another whole host of problems. Right, and we know that Borrelia doesn't live chronically
1: in the body, so there's no need for prolonged antibiotic treatment. And many patients with this chronic Lyme disease diagnosis share the perception that the medical community has failed to effectively explain or treat their illness. And within the scientific community, the concept of chronic Lyme disease has, for the most part, been rejected.
0: Right. So we get to this tricky spot again where the patient is having very real symptoms. They don't feel well. They feel like no one is listening to them. So they seek alternative treatments and then they're vulnerable to be taken advantage of. And we can totally see certain practitioners out there
1: that would see this as an opportunity. Oh, you have chronic Lyme. Let's do this array of treatments because I can treat you for this. Mm. And unfortunately, it's not the case.
0: Yeah. And maybe it's an unproven or an unaffected treatment or, you know, even maybe it doesn't hurt the patient at all, but it's expensive. And maybe that separates the patient from their dollars that they needed And really the idea that a patient is going to a practitioner to get their disease treated, well, we need to make sure that we're actually treating what they have. And maybe chronic Lyme isn't the best diagnosis to give this patient. We need to make sure we're ruling out other things like fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, or even underlying cancers or other scary or sinister diseases and diagnoses. So interesting that you just brought up cancer or malignancies. Oh,
1: Because that leads us to our case that we are going to present for you. Oh, I can't wait. So, Hillary, let me tell you about this. Okay. A man in his late 30s presented with a 12-year history of joint pain and memory loss. Wow, that's
0: a long time, 12 years. It is,
1: but also joint pain is so general and broad. Yes, yes. As well as memory loss. Well, what part of his memory short-term does it affect his... Ability to perform daily tasks. Right. Very broad and nonspecific so far. As well as two years of paresthesias in both hands, which is numbness and tingling. Right. Like pins and needles. Pins and needles. Exactly. A physician diagnosed him with chronic Lyme disease and prescribed oral tetracycline after a telephone consultation despite negative Lyme serological test results.
0: Wow. Okay. So this person saw a doctor online. Yeah. Online, the doctor prescribed him Antibiotics. Yep. And not only did he diagnose him with chronic Lyme and prescribe him antibiotics, he had blood tests that said this person did not have Lyme disease. Exactly. And like I said before, how it doesn't leave, doesn't, Borrelia does not live in the blood.
1: Right. But yet they're still treating him with tetracycline. Okay. So following an in person evaluation two months later, the physician initiated extended antibiotic treatment. So more antibiotics again. Yeah, even more, okay. which as we know, does so many, I mean, there is a time and a place for them, but ultimately that long-term use of antibiotics really just depletes your gut flora and does so many other things to your body. So yeah,
0: long-term antibiotic use, not great.
1: Exactly. And can create resistance to them anyways. Right, right. So the patient's symptoms gradually worsened and he developed syncope or fainting and visual
0: field defects. Wow. So he's fainting and now he's having trouble seeing on top of his joint pain, memory loss and tingling in his hands. Which is just getting worse as well. Okay, right. Evaluation by a different physician revealed a pituitary tumor. Wow. So this person had a tumor in their brain. And this is all consistent
1: with something called
0: acromegaly. Okay,
1: So acromegaly is caused by uncontrolled growth hormone secretion. So when you have a pituitary tumor, it releases several hormones,
0: one of them being growth hormone. Right. And this tumor secretes it constantly. So this tumor, this brain tumor that this man had was secreting growth hormone, causing him to have this disease acromegaly. That was then missed and misdiagnosed as chronic Lyme disease by a different practitioner. Exactly. And just because
1: this patient had been told he had chronic Lyme, he got this practitioner to repeat the test just to make sure. Right. And again, another serological test was negative.
0: So another blood test says you do not have Lyme disease. Exactly. Okay. So
1: ultimately, only a portion of the tumor could be removed and the patient has permanent facial changes. Wow cardiomyopathy which is enlargement of the heart Mm -hmm. joint pain and obstructive sleep apnea all
0: as a result of not being treated originally for this condition right so not only was the condition missed It was misdiagnosed and mistreated. It was treated as something it wasn't. So it delayed the correct treatment. And now some of this patient's symptoms are permanent, unfortunately. exactly. So I think that ultimately just
1: summarizes that the diagnosis of chronic Lyme disease can be very dangerous. Yes. And it can cause the misdiagnosis of
0: severe and potentially life-threatening other conditions. Absolutely. And, you know, if you are practicing safe medicine, these things... Obviously, sometimes do happen. Sometimes you miss things, but pigeonholing yourself into one diagnosis, especially when it's a controversial one with not clear diagnostic standards, can potentially harm your patient because you're delaying treatment that they actually need the real treatment that's going to help their actual condition that and giving treatment like this long course of antibiotics, which causes problems in itself. Right, right. Yeah. I'm wondering if that person had like, you know, antibiotic associated diarrhea or some other, you know, it's not a serious side effect necessarily for a 30 year old, but you know, obviously a potentially uncomfortable one. Uncomfortable alongside with all these other symptoms he's experiencing. Right. Wow. Well, that was a really interesting case. Thanks for sharing. No problem. So thank you everyone for tuning in to episode nine of the probably not lupus podcast. We have one more episode this season. Yes. The final episode. We're really excited to bring back a former guest. Yes. Dr. Jesse Goodall MD will be back to discuss with us a secret topic. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. And we'll see you next week for the final episode of probably not lupus season one. Thank you. Bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Spotify, Google, Apple, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and YouTube at
0: probably not lupus. Probably not lupus is written, recorded, edited, and produced by us alone in our bedrooms. (laughs) I love that.